throughout the Gospel of John is an implied question that surfaces and resurfaces throughout the Gospel. It's a question that demands an answer from each and every one of us if we want to enter the kingdom of God. That question is very simple. How well do we know God? If I was to ask you today to rate yourself on a scale of 1 to 10, how well do you believe you know God on a scale of 1 to 10? John's Gospel shows us that how well we know God is linked to how well we understand ourselves and how willing we are to change what we need to change about ourselves in order to know God better. Let's begin today by turning to John 17 and verse 3. John 17 and verse 3. For those who are familiar with our spokesman clubs and even graduate clubs, we are familiar with the term SPS, Specific Purpose Statement. You have to make sure you always have one of those. To me, the specific purpose statement of John is centered in this verse. John 17, verse 3, the prayer of Christ the night before his crucifixion. Jesus says in John 17, 3, and this is eternal life. You might rephrase this. This is the essence of eternal life. This is what eternal life is all about. This is how we get there. This is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. The word know there means to come to know a person through direct personal experience, to become intimately acquainted with, intimately familiar with. It's a very personal term. In a sense, Christ is saying that the purpose for our existence is to become intimately acquainted with our creator through direct firsthand experience, how he thinks, how he behaves, So much so that it becomes our deepest desire to think and behave like him. In other words, the motivation for knowing God is not to come from a fear or a feeling of threat or the fear that we will go into the lake of fire if we don't come to know God. It means coming to know our creator in such a way that we value him and that we recognize that he is to be valued. And that his nature is so incredible that we want to be like he is. It's about involving ourselves with God, interacting with him. It's about sharing life's experiences together with him rather than walking the path alone, which which is what happens before God involves himself in our lives. It's about experiencing all the way God involves himself in our lives, teaching us, guiding us, supporting us, strengthening us, intervening for us, correcting us, acting on our behalf, looking after us in so many ways, so many ways, in fact, that we don't realize just how much he's involved with you and me. It's through these experiences that we gain a greater appreciation of what God is like, of his intense interest in our lives, of his friendship, of his care, and his commitment to save us from anything and everything that threatens our existence 
well-being, and our future. He's there for us, but how well do we know him in this way? The Bible Exposition Commentary says this, Knowing God is not just knowing about him. It is not simply enough to believe in God. In other words, to acknowledge that there is a God and to adhere to a particular religion, as so many people do. It continues, Christ's debate with the Jewish leaders makes it clear that people may be devoutly religious and still not know God. It's a remarkable statement, isn't it? You think that if you have a religion and you are extremely religious and extremely particular and devout and devoted, that you must know God. But as we will see today, it's possible to be devoutly religious and yet not really know the God you claim to serve. Turn to John 8 and verse 12. John chapter 8 and verse 12. Here Jesus Christ is once again being confronted by the scribes and the Pharisees. As always, they gave him problems. He irritated them. He threatened them in various ways just by being who he was. In John 8 and verse 12, after Christ, in a sense, shows a different approach to the woman taken in adultery than the Pharisees would have taken says in John 8, verse 12, Jesus spoke saying, I am the light of the world. I am the one bringing light to the world. I am the one showing the way to the world. He who follows me, who's willing to walk as I walk, shall not walk in darkness. This world is full of darkness. In a sense, it's like looking at the earth and seeing it enveloped in a thick rubber sheathing the demonic hierarchy that exists that is absolutely dark. We have to deal with that. We have to live in that. He who follows me shall not walk in darkness without real understanding, but have the light of life. The Pharisees therefore said to him, your witness, uh, you bear witness of yourself, and therefore your witness is not true. Oh, what a retort after hearing that. Verse 18, John 8, verse 18. I am one who bears witness of myself. And the Father who sent me, in other words, as his messenger, bears witness of me. So it was two witnesses, not one, which they would have or should have understood by the law. But they said to him, where is your father? And he answered, you know neither me nor my father. You see, the Pharisees had a religion. And they were particularly zealous in their observance of that religion. They diligently performed their duties as prescribed by that religion. They seemed religious. But they did not know the God they claimed to diligently serve. They had a religion, you might say, but they did not have a tangible relationship with the true God. The Bible Exposition Commentary says this about this verse. They claim to know the law of God, 
but they did not know the God of the law. God himself was standing right there in front of them, and they had a problem with him, though they claimed to know him. And unfortunately, they didn't understand why they had a problem with him. But the problem was not with him. The problem was with them. Look at Hosea 6 and verse 3. Hosea 6 and verse 3. Could this have anything to do with you and me? Are we certain as we sit here today that because we know the truth of God, because we're in his church, that we must know God in the way that God desires? I don't believe these things were written for somebody else. Hosea 6. This is written at a time just before the northern nation of Israel went into captivity. Things were bad. And this is a call to repentance. Notice what Hosea says here. God through Hosea. Hosea 6 verse 3. Hosea 6 verse 3. Let us know. Let us pursue the knowledge of the Lord. His going forth is established as the morning. He will come to us like the rain. Like the latter and former rain to the earth. If you know anything about the latter and the former rain... The early rains softened the ground so that seed could be planted. And the latter rains helped the seed to germinate so that there would be life and growth. And so here Hosea is saying God will come to us like the rain. He will bring life and growth. But God, in a sense, says to to Israel and Judah here in verse 4, O Ephraim, what shall I do to you? This is the voice of a God who is frustrated with his people's shortcomings. What am I to do with you? O Judah, what shall I do to you? For your faithfulness is like a morning cloud. And like the early dew, it goes away. God was faithful, but they were not. Verse 6, Hosea 6 and verse 6. For God, I, God, desire mercy and not sacrifice. And the knowledge of God more than burnt offerings. God wanted something more than sacrifices and offerings. Does God simply want that? He was saying, no. I want more than that. Something far beyond that. You see, God doesn't want us to observe a religion of ritualistic duty. Of empty belief in knowledge only. And of simply going through the motions week after week after week. He wants a relationship that forms the foundation and core of a person's religion. A religion that flows from a deep recognition of our own spiritual need and from a healthy appreciation for the way our Creator thinks and behaves. Do we understand how deep our spiritual need is? Do we have a healthy appreciation for the way God is and what He can do to help us? The knowledge of God that Hosea referred to is not merely intellectual information. It was never meant to be merely that. True knowledge of God leads to respect for him, to a valued relationship, and then to surrender, submission, and obedience from the heart. It's reflected in the way we see ourselves 
in the way we respond to the truth and our calling, and in the way we treat other people. It's interesting, we won't turn there, but if you go back and look at the book of Acts chapter 2, it's interesting the sequence of events that occurred there when Peter was dealing with the people who had seen the miracles. He begins by telling them, you killed your Messiah. And they respond with the men and brethren moment. Men and brethren, what shall we do? Because they were deeply convicted that something was dreadfully wrong with them. And so when they then repented and began to realize the way of life they should live, they lived it diligently. They lived up to the truth. They were learning about the truth. They were devoted to learning about the truth. They also were fully involved in the work of God and in doing what God had called them to do. And it also was reflected in the way they treated each other. It says they were devoted to each other. They were devoted to being together. They were devoted to praying for the work of God and each other, which is a beautiful example. But you see, again, this is what God is getting at. Coming to know him should result in that. Where it's not a duty. It's the natural response to recognizing who you are and what God has to offer to make you different. Real belief is not merely intellectual. Real belief is deeply personal and life-altering. For example, a person cannot believe and yet hate his brother. 1 John 4, verse 20. 1 John 4 and verse 20. Here we see another example of someone making a claim, but their life not reflecting that it is true about them, that their claim really doesn't hold water. 1 John 4 and verse 20. 1 John 4, verse 20. John writes, if someone says, I love God, how many people say, I love God? Oh, I love God. I deeply love God. If someone says, I love God, but hates his brother, John plainly states he is a liar. He doesn't know what he's talking about. It's an idle claim. It's an empty claim. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen, how can he love God who he has not seen? You can't say you love God if you have an issue with somebody else, if you hate somebody else, if you can't stand them or don't want to be with them. You can't turn around and claim, oh, I love God. In our experience in the ministry, we've seen and come into congregations where one half is standing in one corner and the other half is standing in the other corner. And neither half wants anything to do with the other half. But they love God. Really? I went into a congregation once where the one half wanted me to disfellowship the other half shortly after arriving. Well, the other half that I didn't disfellowship eventually left because they didn't like the fact that I didn't disfellowship the other half. But eventually the one that remained, the one half that remained, I had to ask not to attend anymore because the attitude was totally wrong and they wouldn't change. Thankfully, that doesn't happen every time I'm transferred into a church. 
But it's very difficult when you see that. And they all claim that they absolutely were committed to the church, to his work, to his people. So does it happen in the church? Can it happen among us? Yeah, it can. Verse 21, And this commandment we have from him, that he who loves God must love his brother also. So maybe if you don't love your brother as much as you should, you need to take a look at that as well as maybe take another look at your devotion to your God, to our creators. True belief leads a person to love his brother in the same way and to the same extent that Christ loved us. Why? Because that person has come to realize why Christ had to die for him and how willing God is to help him change his life for the better. When I counsel people for baptism, I say in a way to try to help them understand what repentance should be for them. As I say, in a sense, you have to come to the point where you are willing to say from the heart, it should have been me on that stake, not Christ. And I don't even deserve to have the opportunity. It should have been me. He shouldn't have had to die for me. You know, when you really see that is when you begin to realize exactly where you stand. That's the men and brethren moment. That's the prodigal son moment. And that's when things begin to be the way they should be in our hearts and minds. That's the beginning of really moving forward spiritually. It's not just about, oh, I've read the statement of beliefs and I agree with it. So therefore, I should be baptized. Oh, that's just simply like adhering to the Apostles' Creed in the Catholic Church, isn't it? We have to realize God wants more. He doesn't just want a religion. He doesn't want just an adherence to the truth or an affirmation that the statement of beliefs of the church is correct. He wants a relationship. Direct, first-hand experience between him and you. This is what the Pharisees, who were proud of their ritualistic observances, didn't even begin to understand. Luke 18 and verse 9. Luke 18 and verse 9. I have to chuckle sometimes when I read this because of a particular phrase in this section about the Pharisee and the tax collector praying to God, or at least thinking one of them, at least, that he was praying to God. But notice this, Luke 18 and verse 9. Jesus spoke this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous. They were firmly convinced that they were on the same page with God, that they were walking arm in arm with God, that they had their arms around each other's shoulders. We're, we're buds. We're best buds. But it says they despised others. Sound a little bit like the problem in 1 John 4? So he tells a parable. Verse 10, two men went up to the temple to pray. One a Pharisee and the other a tax collector, i.e. one devoutly religious, at least in his own mind, and the other who saw himself as not devout really at all. The Pharisee stood and prayed thus 
with himself. This is where I chuckle. You know what Christ is saying is, he was praying, but it wasn't going any higher than the ceiling. He was talking to himself. He prayed thus with himself, O God, I thank you that I am not like other men, i.e., I am so much better than other people, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even as this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I possess. Because this was a parable of Christ, that's why he probably didn't go on and on and on with what the Pharisee probably prayed. In other words, here was a man who was thumping his chest about how spiritual he was and how devout he was. But notice verse 13, and the tax collector, and this is telling, standing afar off. He wasn't standing front and center. He was standing off probably in a dark corner. Because here was a man that if he had lived after Christ's execution, would have been the one saying, it should have been me. I don't deserve to even be standing in the temple. I don't deserve to be able to be talking to my God in heaven. Standing afar off would not so much as raise his eyes to heaven in shame. But he beat his breast, not thumping it, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. Here was a man who saw himself honestly, and he was willing to be honest with himself and with God. Verse 14, I tell you, Christ says, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but he who humbles himself will be exalted. This man, the tax collector, understood himself. He was in a position to be in a right relationship with God. The Pharisee was confident that he was at one with God, but he treated others with contempt, which God would not do. You can't think that you're standing arm in arm with God if you have contempt for someone else. It doesn't work that way. You see, true knowledge of God leads us to see how utterly different we are from him and how desperately we need him to change what we are through and through. When exposed to God the way you need to be exposed to God, you really see a difference. And it changes everything about your perspective. This is what the tax collector saw. Job 42, verse 1. Job 42 and verse 1. I counted this the other day because sometimes I've given estimates and I thought I better be very accurate today. Essentially, Job spends 20 of the 42 chapters of this book defending himself, defending his rightness. Job 42 in verse 1. Notice what happens after God straightens things out a bit, after God really reveals who he is, who he really is to Job. A man who thought he knew the God he diligently served, but obviously didn't in the way he should. Job 42, verse 1. Then Job answered the Lord and said, I know that you can do everything, and that no purpose of yours can be withheld from you. You asked, 
Who is this who hides counsel without knowledge? Another way of saying that is who is this who speaks ignorantly? Who is this who claims to know what he does when he doesn't understand at all? Therefore, I have uttered what I didn't understand. Things too wonderful for me, which I did not know, which I did not even grasp. Job thought he had it all in perspective. He thought he had it all right. But what what was he doing for 20 chapters? I am right. God is wrong. And if he was to come right down here right now, I would be able to prove that he is liable. Whoa. (laughs) We're waiting for the ground to open up underneath us, aren't we? But that's, in effect, what Job was doing. I've got it right. God's got it wrong. Sound a bit like the Pharisees? I've got it right. Christ has got it wrong. So when we don't understand what's going on inside of us, we react in ways that we really shouldn't react when confronted with God and who he really is. And our religion can be something other than what God wants. So verse 4, Job says, listen, please, and let me speak. This is the man who, again, in those 20 chapters, had no problem opening his mouth. And now he's going, you see, please, God, can I just just give me another second here? Because I've, I've got something I really need to say. Please allow me to say this. You said I will question you and you will answer me. Notice I have heard of you by the hearing of the ear. In other words, I knew about you and I thought I knew you. But now my eye sees you. In other words, now I really know you. Now I see you clearly. And what was the result of seeing God clearly? Verse 6. Therefore, I abhor myself. I am totally ashamed because I thought I knew you. I thought I was devoutly following you. That I was extremely and diligently religious. And now I realize I I really didn't get it. I really didn't get what I needed to. I abhor myself and repent in dust and ashes. Once Job really came to see his creator, how God really thinks and behaves and why, Job came to see himself very differently. And he came to see how differently he needed to think and behave. We might say that really seeing God clearly changed Job's whole worldview. It opened up a world that he really never understood before. Have we had this experience ourselves? Or are we perhaps just adherents to a religion? Do we possess the truth, but perhaps only possess the truth? Or is there more? Have we accepted the knowledge of the truth, but have not become intimately acquainted through direct first-hand experience with the God whose nature is expressed in that truth? You see, because behind the truth, the truth is not just a statement of beliefs. The truth expresses the nature of God. That's why you can't play games with the truth, as too many do today. Because the truth is an expression of who God is. 
Take something as, such as tithing. Why is there a first tithe? Why is there a second tithe? Why is there a third tithe? There are some who have done away with third tithe. But what is third tithe about? What's behind third tithe? Are these just three hoops to jump through? To prove that we know God and that we're diligent? Third tithe is about helping the needy, isn't it? And what is God into? God is always into assessing and meeting needs. And there will always be the needy among us. You take away that, just even something like the, like third tithe, and you are taking away a part of God's own nature. In a sense, almost rejecting God's own nature. That's why we can't play with the truth. Because it expresses our God. You see, if I was to say, let's, let's, let's choose a commandment. Choose one of the Ten Commandments we want to do away with. What are we doing away with? We're not just doing away with a law, you know, on paper. We're doing away with, away with a part of God's own nature that is expressed in that law. You shall not commit adultery. What is that really about? It's really about faithfulness, isn't it? And what does it say about God? God is faithful. You take away that, you throw that away, and you're throwing away the faithfulness of God. This is what we have to understand is so critical. You can't play around with the truth. It's not just intellectual information. Knowing God requires far more. John 1 and verse 18. You know, Dr. Meredith has exhorted us again in the recent Living Church News. Prove the truth. Make sure you are convicted by that truth. Why? So that you can live the truth with conviction. Not so simply because the church teaches it. John 1 and verse 18. John writes, John 1 and verse 18, No one has seen God at any time. The only begotten Son, who is in the bosom of the Father, in other words, in a close relationship with the Father, He has declared Him. You see, Christ showed us what God is like. Christ showed us our Creator's inner nature. He showed us the way God thinks. The way God conducts himself, the way he looks at people, and the way he treats people when he is around them. Jesus Christ exemplified that. If you saw the way Christ interacted with people, you saw God the Father and the way God the Father interacts with people. Christ showed us how to deal with the pain and suffering that others inflict upon us, even the way to deal with that. And he also showed us how to deal with the what I call the five words. Difficulty, discomfort, inconvenience, loss, and uncertainty, which is what human life is all about. He showed us how to deal with those things. And he showed us what should matter most to human beings, even to the very end. He showed us all that. But when people were confronted with that nature... They didn't all necessarily like it. John 3 and verse 19. John 3 and verse 19. 
you'd think that when people would see the way Jesus Christ lived, that they would all be pleased, that they would all be impressed, that they would all be moved to be like that. But it didn't necessarily always happen because people didn't understand themselves and why they reacted the way they did to these things. John 3 and verse 19, Jesus Christ is speaking to Nicodemus. And he says, John 3 verse 19, And this is the condemnation, that light has come into the world, and men love darkness rather than light, because why? Their deeds were evil. They don't want somebody to come along and say, what you're doing is wrong. Verse 20, for everyone practicing evil hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his deeds should be exposed. Now, we've had the blessing of having two children. And when those two children were young, I was racking my brain this morning to remember if there was ever a time when they were doing something wrong and knew that they were doing something wrong, that they ever did it right in front of me. It was usually someplace else where I wasn't. Why? Because they knew it wasn't right and they knew there'd be problems. This is human nature. When we're not doing what we should do, what happens sometimes? Sometimes we start not attending services. Or we don't spend a lot of time with people. Or we avoid husbands, wives, children, parents. Because we don't want to be accountable for something that's not right. That we know is not right. But notice the contrast in verse 21. John 3 verse 21. But he who does the truth, he who's proven that truth, he is who is convicted by that truth. A person to, that, with God's help and to the best of his ability, is doing what he should do, comes to the light. Why? Because he's confident, he, has a, he has the right confidence that he's doing what God would want him to do. That his deeds may be clearly seen that they have been done in God. It's interesting that John wrote, Jesus came to his own people, but his own did not receive him. Isaiah foretold that Christ would be despised and rejected. Many did not like what they saw and heard, not necessarily understanding why. Why was that? Because they didn't understand themselves and they didn't necessarily want to understand themselves. The problem, again, was not Jesus Christ's. The problem was theirs. Consider the crowds in John 6 who came not so much for the message, but for the free lunch. You can look up that account. The day before, Christ had fed thousands. And so these people diligently made sure they found him the next day. But when they walked up to Christ, he in effect said, you're not here for the message. You're not here because you're moved by what I'm saying or what I represent or who I represent. You're here because you're hoping for another handout today. And, and what was their reaction? They got angry when he exposed their true motives. They said, well, bring down manna from heaven like our father did, Moses. That was a retort. You see, they were reacting negatively 
Rather than feeling cut to the heart, men and brethren, what do we do? Rather than saying, I'm standing in the middle of pig, pig slop here. I need to go back to, I need to get right with my father. It was an angry retort. Consider the rich young ruler who wanted the magic bullet that would be his ticket to the kingdom. Oh, great one. Oh, good one. What can I do to inherit the kingdom of God? One thing. Because, I mean, I've got everything else down. Is there anything at all I could be missing? And what does it say? Christ pierced through into the heart of this young man and saw the very thing that needed to change, the very thing that could keep him from the kingdom, and he told him. And what was the young man's reaction? He walked away. Consider Nicodemus in John 3. We don't need to turn there. Who, if you notice it, was only willing to acknowledge Christ as a teacher, quote-unquote. And not for who he really was. Nicodemus balked when Christ essentially told him that he needed to be converted. He thought he already was. He thought he had it all down because genetically he was a descendant of Abraham. But in effect, Christ was telling him, as he told many of the others, you're not a spiritual descendant of Abraham. Because if you were, you'd be living differently, thinking differently, and you'd be listening to me. Look at uh, John, or Luke 9, verse 51. Luke 9, verse 51. We also have the example of the Pharisees, for example, who are more concerned with preserving their power and their status. They rejected Christ when he threatened their sense of security. You, you could come up with more examples of how people responded or reacted to Christ and who he was and what he said when he saw them for who they were. But here, even among Christ's disciples, we see a problem, a similar problem. Luke 9, verse 51. Now it came to pass when the time had come for him to be received up that he steadfastly set his face to go to Jerusalem. And he sent messengers before his face. And as they went, they entered a village of the Samaritans to prepare for him. We know that the Jews and the Samaritans didn't get along very well. But, verse 53 of Luke 9, they did not receive him because his face was set for the journey to Jerusalem. And when his disciples, James and John, saw this, they said, oh, that's too bad. We should love them anyways. No, I don't think it says that in your Bible either. Lord, do you want us to command fire to come down from heaven and consume them like Elijah did? You wouldn't have enough courage to say that to Christ unless you really thought that's, that was his mind too. But he turned and rebuked them. And he said, you do not know what manner of spirit you're of. You don't understand yourselves and why you would think this way. For the Son of Man did not come to destroy men's lives, but to save them. James and John didn't understand themselves. And because of this, they thought they were on the same page with Christ when they weren't at all. 
Do you see how easy it is to think that you're arm in arm with God? That you've got it all down. And that everything's just fine. But perhaps that's not always the case. That's where you and I have to look at ourselves. Because as in any relationship, as in any human relationship, as in a marriage relationship, for example, when a couple, when the individuals in that relationship don't really understand themselves, it's a hindrance to the relationship, isn't it? And again, because God is into a relationship, not just a religion, what he's trying to do is help us to understand the things that would become stumbling blocks, maybe even brick walls to having the kind of relationship with him that he wants with us and that he wants us to have with him. That's why it's so important to investigate this. You see, many who showed an interest in Christ were only really interested in any number of other things. Here's the short list. Preserving who they were. Protecting their turf. Defending their lifestyle. Insulating their comfort zone. Asserting their rightness. Arguing against another viewpoint. Or in a broader sense, pursuing their own agenda. Though they felt that they were adherents to the true religion, their personal religion demonstrated that they did not know the God whose religion they claimed to pursue. There were a lot of things in the way. But Christ came to show them, and you and me, that it wasn't and isn't about free meals or stimulating messages, being caught up in a new movement, gaining notoriety, being entertained, advancing oneself, overthrowing a corrupt government, or obtaining a free ticket into the kingdom of God. It's not about that. That's not why God wants us to be here. It's again about understanding ourselves and being willing to change what we need to change about ourselves in order to enter the kingdom of God. That's what our personal work is all about. That's what preparing to be kings and priests is essentially about. Because what are we going to do when Christ returns? We're going to be helping people to understand themselves and show them what they need to change about themselves in order to have a relationship with their Father in Heaven and their older brother, Jesus Christ. The only way to become an expert is to do it yourself now. John 4 and verse 15. John 4 and verse 15. This is the story of the Samaritan woman. Jesus was resting by Jacob's well, and the Samaritan woman came up to draw water. Wouldn't have been an easy task. I don't think any of us would want to do that a few times a day, every day. So she had a bit of a motivation for asking for something that Christ offered to her. She didn't really understand what it was he was really offering. John 4, verse 15, we come into the story. The woman said, after he says, I will give you living water. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water, that I may not thirst, nor come here to draw. Hey, 
if I can get water without climbing this hill every day, please show me where I can find this. But where does that begin? Where does the path to living water really begin? It begins with repentance. Jesus said to her, go call your husband and come here. Ooh. Now, it seems like a harmless question until you read what's next. The woman answered and said, I have no husband. And Jesus says to her, knowing her, you have well said, I have no husband, because you have had five husbands. And the one that you're living with now isn't even your husband. Gulp. In that, you spoke truly. See, this is where she was exposed, wasn't she? This is where she could have had a men and brethren, what shall we do moment. This is where she could have had a prodigal son moment. But what did she do instead? Well, she just turned the tables around. The woman said to him, Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. In other words, let's talk about you. Let's talk about you. In other words, let's get the subject off of me here. I'm uncomfortable. Let's not stick with me. Let's, 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 let's talk to, about you for, for now. See, even she didn't react the way you would have hoped that she would have reacted. That's human nature. So Jesus says, or she continues to say, in verse 20, Our fathers worshipped in this mountain. And you Jews say that in Jerusalem is the place where one ought to worship. Now, we're here in Gerizim and Samaria, and you guys are in Jerusalem. So we have our religion, you have your religion. We worship our God, you worship your God. It's a sense of self-justification here. She's changed the subject. But Jesus, of course, as he was good at doing, points her nose right back where it needs to be. Jesus says in verse 21, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when you will neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We know what we worship, for salvation is of the Jews. But the hour is coming and now is when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. What does that mean? Spiritually, genuinely, according to the truth. With or in a repentant spirit. For the Father is seeking such to worship him. God is spirit. And those who worship him must worship him. Not on Gerizim. Not in Jerusalem. But spiritually. Genuinely. According to the truth. And in a repentant spirit. Otherwise, it's not the worship God wants. The Samaritans had their place of worship and the Jews theirs. But Christ described a different kind of worship that was linked not to any particular place, but to the heart. A worship, again, that flows from a deep recognition of our own spiritual need and a healthy appreciation for the way our Creator thinks and behaves. John 5 and verse 5. John 5 and verse 5. It mentions early in this chapter that this was a feast of the Jews. They were in, were in Jerusalem near the Sheep Gate by a pool named Bethesda. 
where people would go to be healed. John 5, verse 5. Now, a certain man was there who had an infirmity 38 years. That's a long time to be sick. And Jesus saw him, when he saw him lying there and knew that he had been in that condition a long time, he said to him, Do you want to be made well? The sick man answered, Sir, I have no man to put me into the pool when the water is stirred up. But when I am coming, another steps before me. And Jesus said, Rise, take up your bed, and walk. And immediately the man was made well, took up his bed, and walked. It could stop there, but it adds a sentence because this sentence became a problem for somebody. And that day was the Sabbath. If you're a Pharisee, you would go, oops. Verse 15, John 5, verse 15. The man departed and told the Jews that it was Jesus who made him well. He couldn't keep it quiet. For this reason, the Jews persecuted Jesus and sought to kill him. He had just healed a man who had been ill for 38 years. A man who was looking horizontally and looking to a pool of water to heal him. When Christ focused him vertically and said, I can heal you. And the Jews, instead of being excited about this, instead of being moved by this, instead of saying, we need to find out more about this man, we maybe should start listening to this man. No, it says they persecuted him and sought to get rid of him permanently. Why? Because he had done these things on the Sabbath. Whose rules were those? Not God's, but theirs. Is a part of their own religion, not God's religion. Verse 17, but Jesus answered them, My father has been working until now, and I have been working. Therefore the Jews sought all the more to kill him, because he not only broke the Sabbath, again in their eyes, but he also said that God was his father, making himself equal with God. Again, another human perception. They were upset because they were unable and unwilling to understand themselves and to change. And they refused to acknowledge the God they claimed to serve, a God who was standing right there in front of them. Verse 19, John 5, verse 19, Jesus answered and said to them, Most assuredly, I say to you, the Son can do nothing of himself, but what he sees the Father do. For whatever he, the Father, does, the Son also does in like manner. Jesus constantly affirmed that working in concert with his Father, he did only what his Father directed him to do. That he was simply a servant of his Father. And that he didn't operate according to his own agenda. But this stood in stark contrast to the Jews, who because they didn't know the God they ignorantly worshipped, operated entirely according to their own agenda. You see, not knowing God makes you behave in an entirely different way, doesn't it? Verse 37. John 5, verse 37. And the Father himself who sent me has testified of me. You have neither heard his voice at any time or seen his form. But you do not have his word abiding in you. Because whom he sent, him you do not believe. Now the Pharisees would argue this. 
We do have your, you know, the word abiding in us. We know the Hebrew scriptures backwards, forwards, upside down and sideways. But in verse 39, he says, you search the scriptures, you study your Bibles, so to speak, diligently every day, for in them you think you have eternal life, and you do. But these are they which testify of me. But what's the problem? Verse 40, but you are not willing to come to me that you may have life. I do not receive honor from men, but I know you that you do not have the love of God in you. It's possible to know the Bible backwards, forwards, upside down and sideways, but not have the love of God in you. Verse 43, I have come in my father's name and you do not receive me. If another comes in his own name, him you will receive. Was it only a problem with the Pharisees or do we recall in 2 Corinthians 11 where we don't need to turn where Paul said to the Corinthians, I've, I've preached Christ. I've given you the truth. But he says if somebody else shows up and preaches another Christ who we don't know, you say, hey, come on in. Let's listen to this. Tell us more. Verse 44, how can you believe? who receive honor from one another and do not seek the honor that comes from the only God. You see, if the Jews were truly willing, if they truly cared about what God wanted, and if they really knew the God they claimed to serve, they would have clearly recognized that Jesus was the one the scriptures described. It would have been abundantly clear to them. But they were not willing because they cared more about what mattered to them. And so they rejected God's true servant and what he had to say. What really matters to you, above all? And sometimes it's better to make sure that if you say what matters above all is entering the kingdom of God, it might be worth asking God to help you to see if that's really true. You might be surprised when you see the truth. Maybe I'm the only one that has that problem. I don't know. I hope I am maybe. But sometimes we can think that we're doing the right things for the right reasons and don't really understand that that's not always the case. And we need to understand. John 7, verse 14. We need to understand because it affects the relationship we have with God. John 7 and verse 14. About the middle of the feast, Jesus went up to the temple and taught. And the Jews marveled, saying, How does this man know letters, having never studied? He's not gone to our theological seminary. How does he know all this? And Jesus answered and said, My doctrine, my teaching is not mine, but his who sent me. If anyone wills or if anyone wants to do God's will, he will know concerning the doctrine whether it is from God or whether I speak on my own authority. You see, the key to knowing whether any teaching is sound, Christ said, is having a desire and a willingness to do what God wants and knowing God firsthand. If we truly want to do everything that God requires of us, then true teaching will make sense. If we're not entirely willing then we'll have problems even with the truth when it's presented to us in whatever form. 
Paul warned that, uh, that this could and even would happen in the church. Let's turn to 2 Timothy 4, verse 3. 2 Timothy 4 and verse 3. If Paul only knew that the Internet was coming eventually, he would recognize how easy it would be for this warning to come to reality. 2 Timothy 4 and verse 3. Paul said, For the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine. Why, do you, why would you reject teaching? The same reason that, Christ, or that people rejected Christ's teaching. They didn't like it. They didn't want to be exposed. They didn't want someone telling them they were wrong. They didn't want someone helping them to see that they're not where they think they are. Repentance doesn't end in baptism. The whole path to coming into one with oneness of God is a path of continual repentance. It's not over till it's over. They will not endure sound doctrine, but according to their own desires, because they have itching ears. Itching ears means they will desire to hear what they want to hear. They will heap up for themselves teachers. In other words, they will accumulate teachings to suit their own desires. And the Internet gives you anything you want that way. But it's not all right. A lot of it is wrong. But why would you do that? Why would you look for this teacher and that teacher and this teaching and that teaching unless you're sort of assembling your own religion? But the truth isn't that way. The truth is the truth, and it confronts us. And we're the ones that have to move. We're the ones that have to change. Because why, again? That truth is an expression of the God we serve. And knowing that truth and understanding that truth and being convicted by that truth brings us into line with our Creator. And it removes the roadblocks to having the kind of relationship, the unhindered relationship with God that he wanted us to have and wants us to have. 1 Timothy 1, verse 3. 1 Timothy 1, verse 3. Paul had to give a warning again to Timothy here. 1 Timothy 1, and verse 3. As I urged you when I went into Macedonia, remain in Ephesus that you may charge some that they teach no other doctrine. This is a continual problem. Verse 4, nor give heed to fables and endless genealogies. There's always somebody coming along saying, oh, they don't have this truth. No, here's, here's the truth you really need to have. I can give you that truth. Which cause what? Peace and harmony and oneness. No, cause disputes. That's all it does. Rather than godly edification, which is in faith. That's what happens when distractions come. They distract us or pull us away from the things we need to finally and acutely and fully focus on. The things that really matter. And don't you know that that is what Satan is trying to do, is pull us away 
from what really matters. A willingness from the heart to do what God wants will make it clear whether teaching is a man's private opinion or God's clear instruction. That attitude of heart will move us to do all that we've been told. It's about where we are in our heads and in our hearts. Where are you in your head and in your heart? Do you understand yourself in the right sense? 1 John 4, verse 6. 1 John 4, verse 6. First John 4 and verse 6. Again, John here distinguishing those who are of God as opposed to those who are not of God. First John 4 verse 6. We are of God. He who knows God in the way that we've been talking about today hears us. He listens to us. He takes on board what he's hearing. But he who is not of God does not hear us. By this we know the spirit of truth and the spirit of error. John tells us that those who know God listen to what they are told. Do we listen to what we are told? It implies that we want to know. It also implies that we're willing to accept everything that is true. Do we want to know? Are we eager to hear? Do we take every word seriously and evaluate ourselves daily by what we've been told? Are we eager to seek counsel? When you have a problem, are you willing and able, eager to seek counsel? What makes it difficult sometimes to seek counsel is you may be wrong and you might get told you're wrong. But does it matter enough to be right? And to be doing the right thing, to seek counsel and have the wrong exposed? Can we be corrected? All these are indicators of how well we know God. I was struck by something that Mr. Wallace Smith said in the Bible study during the Charlotte Family Weekend. We were able to live stream that from out in good old Albuquerque. But he talked, of course, about the five qualities of God's greatness. And the one that struck me the most was God's omniscience. It's not like I never heard it before. But it's that idea that God knows you and me through and through. Would it not be in our best interest to be willing to expose ourselves to a God who already knows it all about us? And ask him to lovingly expose those things that are hindering our relationship with him? Yeah, but that takes a good deal of courage, doesn't it? Because sometimes you can be doing the right thing and find out it's entirely for the wrong reasons even. And it's tough to take. I know. I've experienced it for 36 years now. But it's the only way to peace and happiness. It's the only way to a better life. And, and the ticket's there. But you have to be willing to understand yourself, to come to see yourself as God sees you. Hebrews 3, verse 7. Hebrews 3 and verse 7.
Paul here is talking about Israel and Israel's experience. It's very interesting here that in a sense we have another picture of Israel doing what all these other people were doing that we've been reading about today. Maybe you've never caught this in right in this embedded in this particular section. Hebrews 3 and verse 7. Paul, of course, is trying to encourage these people, exhort them to hang in there, to get back to where they need to be, to build the zeal, rebuild the zeal again and the devotion. And he's warning them, be careful that you don't become like Israel. Hebrews 3, verse 7, Therefore, as the Holy Spirit says, Today, if you will hear his voice, do not harden your hearts, as in the rebellion. What did Israel do? They were full of resentment oftentimes. They lacked appreciation for what God was doing for them. In the day of trial in the wilderness, what did God do? He said, I allowed you to hunger so that I can find out whether you will obey me regardless. God was intending to test them. But notice what it says in verse 8. Where your fathers tested me and tried me. They turned the tables on God. He had saved them out of Egypt and they were testing him. Is he going to do what we want? Is he going to meet our every demand? They tried to turn the tables on the one who saved them from Egypt. Where your fathers tested me, tried me, and saw my works 40 years. He met their needs for 40 years. Therefore, I was angry with that generation and said, They always go astray in their heart and have not known my ways. Interestingly, the complete Jewish Bible renders this. They don't understand the way I do things. So I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. Here Paul links hearing God's voice with responsiveness and faithfulness and contrasts it with choosing to sin in spite of what we've been told. If we're not careful, habitually ignoring or rejecting what we've been told can harden our hearts until we become unresponsive to God's voice. We don't want to do that because we might end up severing the relationship that God is trying to build with us. Deeply respecting and responding diligently and fully to the teaching that comes from God prevents this from happening. Remaining open, remaining receptive. How do you do that? Well, we're clay right in the hands of the master potter. What is absolutely required for clay to be malleable? Water. That's why the Holy Spirit is essentially vital every day, every minute. It's why we pray, why we should pray. God, take back my brain, take back my human spirit, immerse it in your Holy Spirit, and change it. That's why Dr. Meredith says, you know, purge me, scour me, cleanse me, clean me out, scrape me clean. Because what's left in there that's not right will continue to keep a wall between us and God. We've got to get rid of everything that's in the way. Christ was trying to confront the people he dealt with, with the wall. You and I have something these people didn't have. 
to break down the wall, to remove the bricks brick by brick and come to the point where we really know our God and have the kind of relationship with him that we were always meant to have. 1 John 5 and verse 20. 1 John 5 and verse 20. First John 5 and verse 20. John writes, And we know that the Son of God has come and has given us an understanding. You and I can understand these things that we're hearing today and learn from them. But why did he do that? That we may know him who is true. Through Christ and the Holy Spirit, we can interact in a deeply personal way with the Father and come to know him as Christ knows him. The more we interact at that level, the more our minds and lives will reflect that interaction. First Chronicles 28, verse 9. First Chronicles 28, verse 9. If you don't mind me reading it from the message translation, I would like to read this to you from the message translation. I don't use it often, but sometimes it's expressive in a way that helps us to get at what God is saying. 1 Chronicles 28, verse 9. Again, I'm reading from the message translation. It says, And you, Solomon, my son, get to know well your father's God. Serve him with a whole heart and an eager mind. For God in his omniscience, I added that, examines every heart and sees through every motive. If you seek him, if you have the courage to understand yourself, to see yourself as he sees you. If you seek him in that way, he will make sure you find him. How well do we know God? Do we know about him? Or have we become intimately acquainted with him firsthand? How well do we understand ourselves? And how willing are we to change and to do what God says? The answers can be found by looking at our lives, your life and my life. So let's examine ourselves in light of these examples and seek the kind of relationship that God, with God that will deeply engage our hearts and effectively change our lives. It's been a pleasure to be with you today.